Welcome back to the Epics Podcast. I started this podcast because I believe that the foundation of hate and discrimination in our world comes from a lack of understanding of those who are different from ourselves. We plan to combat that by hearing everyone's stories so that we can better understand them and be a part of creating real positive change. It's been a while since I've released a new episode, and unfortunately, in my experience, when someone with ADHD goes through many life transitions, the consistency of his or her passion project can take a hit. But I'm back and I have several episodes ready to share with you all. And this week on the podcast, I'm going to share with you my conversation with Sadrila Maruska, or Sadie as she goes by. Sadie is a social justice, equity, inclusion, and diversity consultant. She's the host of the Diversity Dish podcast, a speaker and aspiring author. And she has a passion for helping individuals and business cultivate cultures of equity and inclusion. She's a first-generation Haitian-American, a wife and mother who prides herself on having an amazing extended family network and being a citizen of the world born in Queens, New York. We talked about her experiences with racism growing up, how to be a better ally, and so much more. Sadie's a wonderful person with so much to share and teach us, and the more time I spent working on this episode, the more I learned, as she has so many great things to say. Don't be free to listen more than once to catch it all like I did. So let's get into it. Here is Sadie's epic story. Well, thank you, Sadie, for joining me today. I'm so excited to talk with you on this episode. Thank you for having me, Alex. I'm excited to be here. Could you first describe yourself, what you look like, where you are for the people who can't see you? Oh, well, let's see. I am a Black woman with a hat on, some gold earrings, a a sweatshirt that says, if you can be anything, be inclusive. And I am in my bedroom slash studio. <laughs> There's the same thing. That's where I'm at. I'm in my home office slash bedroom. That's right. <laughs> and is there anything else that you would want listeners to know about you before we get started that you don't think we might uncover in the course of this conversation? Oh, my goodness. I think I think we'll uncover most of it. I am uh, married, almost married for 19 years. Congratulations. Have, thank you. I have two children. My son is 15 and my daughter is 10. And then I have a, a dog who is five years old. He is a standard poodle and he is awesome. And, you know, we live out in a right to farm community, which simply means that, you know, right next door could be chickens and goats and and big gardens. And it's awesome. So let's, let's get into your story a little bit. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what your childhood was like. I grew up, uh, my parents are Haitian immigrants. They've been in this country for as long as I've been in this country. I was born here. I was born in, in New York. And my mom, my mom and dad were married in June. They, my mom came to this country in July. My dad came in September and I made my appearance in September. So they wasted no time at all. <laughs> in getting their family started. And as an, as immigrants, you know, they came to this country with specific ideas about what they wanted to do. And for my dad, it was specifically education, getting as far in education as he could, which he did. He's a PhD, a retired professor emeritus and but because of that although we came to New York and I was born in New York my brother was born in New York we moved a lot 
when I was younger. We moved around a lot. We went to different places because my dad was looking for the the right job or the right educational opportunity or whatever was going to help him take that next step in this country. And so when I was nine and 10, I we found ourselves in Salt Lake City, Utah, because my father was doing his PhD program at the University of Utah. And that, for me, being nine and 10 in a place where there was no representation of what I looked like, mm-hmm. I thought to my, I, I think back now and I realize how important, how pivotal that that time was for me Um, because I remember very vividly during that time that I would go to the bathroom and I would stand in front of the mirror and I would push up my nose so that it'd be pointier Mm. you know so that it would look more white and I'd ask my mom why can't I wear my hair out like my friends and when she would let me do that every once in a while, which was not often at all because afterward was a nightmare, I wondered why didn't it fall straight like mm-hmm. my friend's hair did? And so I realized, especially as, a, as my daughter is now 10 years old, what a pivotal time it is when you're just kind of coming into your own, figuring out how you dress, figuring out what you like, figuring out the music you love, figuring out how you're going to relate to this world. And then to be in that space and time in a place that just didn't affirm your, who, who you were. When I was 10 years old, the summer that I was 10 and I was going on 11, we moved back to New York. And, and we lived in New York City. So I lived, I grew up mostly in Queens, New York. And going to New York after having been in Salt Lake for two years was culture shock. Mm. <laughs> because it was a totally different environment. I didn't understand the language, the, the vernacular that was being used because it had never really been in my purview Mm -hmm. and but I met and became good friends with people who looked like me and who Mm -hmm. affirmed me and who whom I could relate to in a different way and I don't ever remember myself thinking about going into the bathroom and putting my nose up or wondering why I couldn't wear my hair out. It was more like, how do I learn how to braid like this? Mm. How do I learn how to wear my hair in a way that, that was conducive to, to my hair texture? And so that was at 11. And I think that I'm really glad that that was a shift that happened during that time because I think that I could have gotten lost yeah. in the idea that there was something wrong with me if I hadn't moved to New York to realize there was nothing wrong with me. I was just different. Like I was who I was and everybody else was different than me. Right. And so we, so I grew up there. And then after that, you know, gone to college and 
off to high school in New York, off to college in Michigan, mixed college. So, you know, identity wise, I think that my crises were more when I was just coming in. And then after that, I started to come into just being who I was and loving that person. Talking about when you're 10 years old and you're in the in the bathroom trying to push your nose up. I can't imagine anyone's nose wanting to look more like mine. So that in and of itself is a bizarre thought to me. And I, I'm always struck by how young you are when you, you really realize how different you are. And you talked about all of the ways that you noticed you were different. Your hair was different. Your nose is different. And obviously skin it's color skin is different. Color. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, was, were there other were there other external factors that were reminding you? Were other people pointing out these differences and in different ways? Well, it's interesting that you asked that. So when we got there, we met this really lovely family who lived downstairs from us. We lived in university family apartments. So we had this lovely family that lived downstairs from us, and they were the ones to welcome us into the community. There were my brother and I were the only two black children for miles. Like we were the only two black children in our school, which was made up of maybe two, 300 students. But there were different instances that things did happen externally that made me realize, you know, that I was different. Once I remember one day I was playing with a group of kids, it was boys and girls, and everybody decided they're going to play run, catch and kiss. And so we started the game, you know, the girls run, the boys run after the girls, catch the girls and kiss the girls. After a while, everyone noticed, as well as I did, that I wasn't getting caught or Mm. kissed. And so a friend stopped the game and said, look, you know, we need to make this fair for everybody. So, you know, let's all try to make this fair. Everybody's like, okay, okay. So we did another round and one brave soul decided he was going to go ahead and catch me. And so he caught me and, and he kissed me very quickly on the cheek and the game was over. Mm. That was it. There was, there was no more game. And, you know, that's always stood out in my mind because I at that age, you don't really understand, like, what's the problem? Like, I know that I'm black. My skin color is not going to rub off on you, but I'm just a human, just like you. And so it was very confusing as to why that would happen. And it, of course, it was heartbreaking. You know, it was sad, but we stopped playing the game and we kind of just went on and, and did something else. And I didn't, I didn't dwell in that sadness or that place because of course my friends were also there the the family that had welcomed us they had six kids and two of the kids were right around my age and so they became really good friends to me Mm -hmm. protectors even sometimes one of them was telling me about a time and I and I do believe that I blocked out some things Mm. uh, because one was one of them was telling me just recently, a few years ago, was telling me about a time where I was in the classroom and, and he was in my class. And 
there was a kid in the class who kept calling me poop, who was saying that I was poop. And it was upsetting to me. And so I started to cry and I started to get upset. And instead of the student getting in trouble, I got in trouble for disrupting the class and I was sent to the hall. And my friend said that he came out to the hall, he talked to me and I told him that it was fine. I didn't want to, you know, talk. And he understood, he, 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 he didn't understand because then he went home and he says, mom, I don't understand why she got in trouble. She didn't do anything. It was the other kid and he didn't get in trouble. And his mom had to kind of try to explain it to him. How do you explain something like that, you know, to kids? I think that I blocked it out because I didn't go home and tell my mom mm. this happened. And I don't know what my parents would have said or done having heard that this happened and, you know, in this situation. I so And I didn't get written up or anything, but the mere fact that I was the one that was asked to leave because I was being disruptive because I wouldn't stop crying or feeling badly it you know it speaks volumes to things that happen and they still happen now mm -hmm. you know which is which is sad to think because that was like 40 plus years ago <laughs> yeah and we're still you know kids are still dealing with that that sort of thing you know i remember being in the in the school again walking through the hall i was going to the bathroom and some kids were working on a map project and i think it was a map of africa and as i walked by the guy goes oh look it's nigger and i thought oh my god and so i went straight to the principal because the principal had said you know if if anything happens please come talk to me let me know so he came back with me and the guys and the and the little boy said, no, no, this it's nigger. And it was Niger. Mm -hmm. And I said, that is not nigger. That is Niger. And that's what that's not what you said, you know, and I don't remember what the principal did because I'm pretty sure he didn't do much. He just kind of said to the kid, don't, you know, read it properly. Don't do that. And then it was over but in my mind i was like how is it that someone can just do that right I, it's just so mm. it was very confusing to me those external things that were pushing against me which i think were also part of the reason why i wondered why can't i just be like everybody else why do i have to be why am i different why do i have to be different look different and have people treat me differently. So yeah, to, to, to answer your question, it was internal, but I think it was internal because of the external. Because remember, when I went to New York, I never questioned anymore. I didn't question my blackness. I didn't question who I was. Although, you know, when I got there, people were like, oh, you, you talk white. And I was no. like, I don't even understand what that means. <laughs> Oh, what? You know, I don't I don't understand. So, you know, there there's a lot of confusion around that time, but I'm glad that the, the confusion ended more so in a black community, a Haitian community, Jamaican, Bahamian, Trinidad and Tobago. I had lots of island people around me. 
lots of family around. And that helped me to affirm me and, and not question me all the time. Yeah. And that's hard because kids, well, kids can be jerks, but so can adults. Right. <laughs> and so at, but you being the victim in both of these situations, in one situation you get in trouble and the other situation, nothing really happens to the other kid. That's confusing. Right. I mean, it makes no sense. You said, how, how do you explain that you, to a kid? You can, how do you explain that to an adult? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And that's, that's the point, right? Is right. there's this disparity in, in how, how you were treated versus these other kids. Yeah. And that's happening within your peers, what's happening within the adults. Yeah. I'm curious, what's the age difference between you and your brother? My brother and I are two years apart. So mm. he was my friend. Okay. <laughs> he was my friend as we did. Everywhere. And is he older or younger? He's younger. Okay. I'm did the you, eldest. Did you notice when you're both the only two black kids for miles, you said, did you notice him being treated differently than you just as a boy versus a girl? I didn't because I don't think I was paying attention to mm. that so much. My brother, we were just talking about this the other day, but my brother got to school and he was the only black kid in his class and he, he my brother has hd eight he not ADHD, he has uh, dyslexia mm -hmm. but he we didn't realize he had dyslexia until he was an adult so in the classroom he was sometimes not able to focus because he can't really read or what's going on you know understand and as we were talking about it just recently, he says, you know, what happens is kids go into a classroom and they see what the boundaries are. And so they push the boundaries, right? All kids do this. Mm -hmm. they, they'll go and they'll push the boundaries to see where the teacher is going to allow them to go. Well, again, these teachers probably had never had experience with Black children. And so they were incredible incredibly flustered when it came to my my brother and so the teacher my dad said I remember the teacher calling me and she was you know she was like I don't know what to do like what do I do and my dad's like well what is he doing and he says well he's you know he's he's running around the classroom he's jumping on the desks and he's you know he's doing all these things in the middle of class and I just don't know what to do my dad was don't worry I'll take care <laughs> You know, and my dad, we we didn't get spanked, but my dad was like, look, you need to straighten up and fly right. So that my my dad actually had to put in the boundary for mm. the teacher because she didn't realize, understand that he was a child, just like all the other children right. in her classroom. And so she needed to put in boundaries for him, just like she did for all the other students in the classroom. <laughs> So he had to take over and do it. Um, but because he was two years younger, you know, he was six and seven when we were in Salt Lake. He was he was a bit younger. And I don't think that he was coming into himself as I was. And, you know, ask my brother. My brother doesn't really remember a lot of mm. about Salt Lake, whereas I remember a lot more. He remembers the the family the friends that we had in that family that lived downstairs that he remembers that but he doesn't remember a whole lot I think I remember a lot more and I don't think I remember things everything you know as 
Yeah, well, none of us do, right? Like right. you said, and you and you had to block some of it out. Right. Right. And, and what did your what were your parents doing at home to preserve some of your Haitian culture? Because it sounds like identity was really confusing in the situation that you guys were in. So did they do anything to yeah. instill some Haitian stuff for you guys? Yes. I've never been ashamed to be Haitian. And there was a time there, especially in the 80s, the 80s and even some of the 90s, where people would not say that they were Haitian because Haitians were being blamed for AIDS. Haitians were believed to be really less than. So there were a lot of instances that people were embarrassed about being Haitian where I was never embarrassed about being Haitian because my father always spoke so highly of Haiti and the Haitian culture and the Haitian history. And because I knew the history that I came from, I think that there was that that helped me to counter the 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 stories or the the stigma of being Haitian. I was like people can lie, people can say everything they want, but history tells us that this is where we come from. These are the people, these people who became, who, who, who kicked out the French and said, we're not going to be enslaved anymore. You guys can grab your stuff and go, or we're going to take care of you right here and you will never leave. And created the first Black free republic in the Western Hemisphere. So to know that and to understand that helped me to be more grounded to 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 ground into that and my dad would always talk about his childhood and going to the beach and going fishing and hanging out with his friends and how beautiful the island was and all these things and so i think that because of that i was still able to even though in that community in that area i wondered why i was different i was still able to know that being haitian was something to be proud of and that I could be proud of that and that that nothing could could take that away from me I feel like it's beautiful to have the sense of pride as the foundation mm -hmm. because if you let yourself become affected by some of those external factors it could have really diminished that I would imagine but right. you had that foundation from your father from your parents my parents yeah yeah and and my mom, you know, my mom, what she gave me was the most amazing extended family. So she was one of seven sisters and the sisters, they, they, it was like they migrated. They were like a flock of birds. They were just, you know, they, they did everything together growing up and it translated into them basically raising their kids together. And so I have this network of so it's it's me my brother and then my sister so it's three of us then my aunt passed away and so her two children became um my siblings and then I had this whole network of of cousins you know my mother's cousins children as well so I have this huge network of people that affirm always that we are you know what we have is special. We, you know, we're Haitian and we're proud. We are, we're 
productive, we're beautiful, we're, I mean, all the things we just affirm ourselves all the time. And having that has, was also so important. And which is why I say that it was great that I moved back to New York because that's where at that time also, because that's where I tapped into, oh my goodness, yes, my cousins, I missed them before, but now I'm so glad to be here. And they taught me how to braid hair and they taught me how to do my nails and they taught me, you know, they, and I listened to them speak and I learned the vernacular. And so it's those things I think that really helped to affirm and solidify uh, the person that I become now. I I just love the community that you had behind you. I, I feel like that must've been such a blessing to yeah. have that, particularly when you go back to Queen. Yeah, it was amazing. And now, even though we're all scattered everywhere now, but when we have the opportunity to get together, nobody wants to miss it. And it is mm-hmm. just so electric. And we spend as much time together as we possibly can. Um, and it's and it's great because now even my children have that to tap into. I'm married to a white man. My children are biracial, but they know also where they come from. They know they have that community to tap into. They know that they're never, they're never, they'll never be alone. And that, you know, that they have that culture, that culture is also theirs. And I think obviously parenting brings a whole nother layer of pressure to everything that we do, (laughs) at least in my experience. And so you talk about how your kids are now at the ages you were when you were starting to see some of this inequity. Yeah. How much does that enter your mind when you're consciously parenting them, thinking about how they could be treated, how they could be seen in the world? And they have another layer of being biracial as well. Mm -hmm. How does that enter your thought process as you're parenting them? Uh, it, it enters into my thought processes, my thought process a lot. I know that they're not going to have the same experiences that I had because they are biracial. They are, we do live in a predominantly white area, but my parents are here and my brother is here and my, and so my brother's children are here. So their cousins are here. And so they have that, that, that link. But I also you know, there are different times when different things come up there. You know, my brother, he had kids before I did. He got married before I did. He had kids before I did. And so something that he would always do when he was watching something with the kids was always pause the show and go, OK, this is a teaching moment. Mm-hmm. And I kind of picked up on that. And so when I'm watching something with my kids and something happens and I'm reacting in in a way in, you know, in a visceral way or. I feel that it can speak to something that may not come up naturally in conversation. I will stop and I say, okay, this is a teaching moment. I want you to understand why this character is doing this to this character or why what that character just said is so offensive or why this situation can be real and it is so, and it can be so hurtful. And I, and I go through those because I want them to, realize that they're they're growing up in this very sheltered life which I also grew up in a very sheltered life but 
I don't want to feel nervous when I send them out into the world that they don't have any clue (laughs) of what's going on out there and what they may encounter. I want them to know that to have a clue, it needs to be in the back of their mind, even if it's not in the forefront, that there are different things that are very possible because of what they look like. Can you remember a specific example of a teaching moment where you had to pause and, and do that? Is, is there one that comes to mind? There's a show that I watched with my son uh, and that I, we, we stopped after a few episodes because our schedules got crazy, but I want to get back to it. And that is the um, All-American. Um, it's a CW show starring Tay Diggs and a bunch of other beautiful people. <laughs> And, but the reason that I really liked the show and in that show, I would stop a lot. The reason that I really liked the show is because it confronts a lot of issues that kids, biracial, black, white can, can encounter depending on how things are going on, you know, around them. And so that is one show where I, I often where I did often stop and say, you know, this is the reason why. And think of any particular episode. There was an episode where the kids were going, they, they were in the Compton neighborhood and the Compton neighborhood was being gentrified. And a woman put in a yogurt shop or frozen yogurt shop and all the kids, so there was black and their mixed race kids that went into the shop and they were then you know kind of standing around quote unquote loitering if you will which i don't like that word because <clears throat> it's a ne- there's a negative connotation to that you right. know oh look at those kids over there loitering no they're just talking they're just mm-hmm. hanging out they're just They just happen to be standing over there. And if it makes you uncomfortable, you really should examine why you're uncomfortable. Right. But, you know, the kids were loitering. And so she called the police. And when she called the police, the police came and they said, we're not doing anything. We're just standing here. But of course, you know, it escalated with the police because the police and of course, this is a dramatization, but it is not so far fetched that. I could say it doesn't ever really happen that way because I, I'm I'm pretty sure that it, it it can, and so I stopped and I said to my son, I said, when people move into other neighborhoods that are not their own and they are uncomfortable with the way that the neighborhood was, this is what happens. Mm-hmm. There comes a clash, and these kids are not doing anything wrong. But because someone is uncomfortable because it's not their norm, quote unquote, or because they're nervous for whatever reason, whatever biases they hold, then things can escalate to a point like this. And so you've got to kind of, you know, be aware of that. You know, another thing is, you know, following George Floyd, I was asked to do a speech at a vigil for George Mm -hmm. Floyd. And my son was, he, he, he knew and he understood what, what was happening or what happened because he was 14 at the time. But I, 
I was doing the speech and he says, I want to be there at the speech. I said, great, you should be there at the speech. You should hear what I, what I have to say. And the thing that I had to say was that as a mom and as a mom to a biracial son who looks black, because he doesn't look white, he may be light skinned, but he doesn't look white. He doesn't mm-hmm. have, he doesn't have that nose that I was trying to get in the mirror. <laughs> right. And he's got, you know, he's got curly hair. He's got the Afro kind of, you know, hair. But as a mom to a son, I get nervous to a 13-year-old son who's coming up to the years where he's going to be in cars with friends. I get nervous about him being in cars with friends Mm. because most of his friends are white. And... Were most of his friends black, there would be a different type of nervousness. Right. If if most of his friends were black, I would know and understand that those boys in that car, boys or girls in that car, have all had the talk. They've all been told mm-hmm. how to deal with a traffic stop. They've all been told what to do, what not to do, and all those things. But because he's a sole black boy with a multiple white friends now, and he's going to be in the car, it gives me the nervousness that those kids understand that they can use their voice. They have a right to speak up and yell back and be belligerent if they want to, and nothing's going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. And that makes me nervous because if they become belligerent with Mm -hmm. my son in the mix, my son then becomes the instigator. Even if he were not the instigator and he becomes the focus of the wrath that really should be going towards whoever was the instigator. And so I say to him, often I say, I hope you can talk to your friends and let them know. That if you if they are with you, they need to temper themselves. No one should be escalating the situation. No one should be questioning and acting as if they are entitled, which is possible. Because if that happens, it will be you that will have the biggest problem. And... That was kind of the the gist of my speech in that I said, I want all moms, not just black moms, but I want white moms to talk to their sons, especially if they have friends from marginalized communities and say, you need to be this way in order to protect your friend and to protect yourself. Because if things escalate, It is not just that person that will be affected. It is everyone. Because let's say something were to happen and my son were to be taken to jail, were to be shot, were to whatever the case may be, everyone that is there is going to have PTSD. Everyone that is there is going to have the shock of that event within their system and so it's not just that oh just that kid 
got affected. No, all of them will get affected. So it's important. And I talk to him about that all the time. And I want to stress how important that is, particularly for, for those of us with white children. For, I think about that for myself with two white boys. How, how do I navigate that with them as they're becoming older? Because I don't have to for their sake. Right. So it's, it's, on, it's on me, it's on my wife to proactively have those conversations with our children because mm-hmm. we don't have, we don't, it's not a necessity for us or for them like it is for, for you and your family. Right. And I think it's so important for us to hear, hear these stories from your perspective from your perspective as a, as a mother of color with a, a son of color and what your p- specific fears are when he yeah. goes out with his white friends, because my kids will be the white friends right. one day. And right. I need to have that in my mind when I, when I'm in that situation, I want to be able to reflect back to what you're saying about how, how does he need to, how do they need to re- act or to be protective of of their friends yeah even if or just other people whether they're not friends or not and i think that's so hard to do because it it doesn't have to affect us we have to choose to let it affect us right it's not in every it's not an everyday thought it's not part of your it's not part of your zeitgeist so to speak right right it doesn't it doesn't come naturally to you because you why would you ever have to think that? I mean, my husband doesn't have to think that, you know, um, my husband and I, he's he, when he, the first time that he got pulled over and I was in the car, you know, the thing that went through my head was, is the registration okay? And the second mm-hmm. thing was, I need to tell him not to talk to me. So I said to him, do not talk to me. Do not ask me to get anything for you. You need to get all your stuff for the police officer. I am not here. And of course, he looked at me like I was nuts. Right. And um, and and we stopped. And I was trying to be literally invisible. Mm. I did not move. I just sat there. But in my husband's mind, who is a white man from the Midwest, he's having a full-on conversation with the police officer. And in my mind, I'm freaking out. I'm going, in whose world is this real life? And I realized that is real life in his world. But in my world, what I know when when I've if I've gotten when I've gotten stopped or when someone, a, a black person that I know has gotten stopped, it is not a full-on conversation. It's just how may I help you, officer? My hands are here on the on the steering wheel. I am complying. Yes, I'm going to get that for you. I'm not going to move very fast. I'm going to go ahead and get it. I'm even might even tell you exactly what I'm doing so that you're not freaking out because mm-hmm. I'm because I'm black. No other reason. I'm going to get my things. I'm going to give it to you. And all I'm thinking is, I just want to get out of this and go home and be fine, right? And he's having a full-on conversation. Never in his mind did it enter that his life could be in danger. Mm-hmm. In my mind, it entered that his life could be in danger simply because he was with me. And you don't know who you're getting. You mm-hmm. don't know who is stopping you. You don't know what, 
how their thoughts work. And so if that guy is thinking, oh, he loves black women, huh? He's a, mm. he's a, he's a nigger lover, huh? That could be the, the, the thing that causes everything to escalate. But if he's not, and that cop was it, they're having a conversation, they're doing their thing. I'm really quiet because I don't want to cause the problem. And then we move on and I take a deep breath and then we keep going. But and there's a huge difference between the fear that you would feel being pulled over and the annoyance that he or I might feel. Exactly. And we, and not that any of us enjoy being pulled over. Right. But there's a huge difference between, yes. between those two experiences. Yes. I always say, you know, if I see somebody getting pulled over, I'm like, oh, that cop's ruining somebody's day. Somebody's day is just getting ruined, which, you know, I mean, that's just how it feels, right? It's like, oh, God, now you got to deal with that, you know? But yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge disparity. And so now you do a lot of work with different businesses, creating more di diverse include and inclusive initiatives within the workplace. And one of the ways that it sounds like you do that is by examining the present culture of that workspace. Yes. Can you, can you talk to me about what that process is like? What's the first step in examining that culture? The first step usually for me is to look at the policies. Mm. What policies do you have in place? Because sometimes the policies in and of themselves are exclusive. They exclude the needs of people, different people that are within the organization. So I'll look at the policies. We'll go through and we also can do salary audits. Yeah. You know, how equitable are the salaries? Then I look at what, how are you speaking to your people? Is there, is there clear communication that certain things are not allowed and if there isn't, why isn't there, right? Do people know that they cannot uh, promote other people above someone else simply because they like them better, right? Or because they, they don't think this person will do the right job, but not because they've examined how this person is doing the work, but simply because they have this idea that they, it's not really possible for them to do a good job the biases that they hold. And so, you know, so I go through all those things and then I begin to talk to people. I begin to talk to people about their experiences within the workplace. All the people, not just the marginalized people, but the white people as well. Um, those people who, uh, anybody who works within the organization, I start to talk to them to see where they think there's disparity. One of the things that we really need to stop doing is guessing about what it is people and communities and organizations need. We need to talk to them so that they can tell us exactly what it is they need. So I could talk to the executive level and we can come up with a plan based on what I've looked at in terms of the policies and the procedures and and then we can say, okay, well, this is what we're going to do because we think that this is going to be best for everybody. And the people at the bottom are going, why didn't anybody ask me? Because this 
affects me in this way. Why didn't anybody ask me? Because this is useless. It's mm -hmm. not going to do any good for anybody within the organization. So we want to ask as many, talk to as many people as possible and get as many perspectives as possible because no one of us can speak to the needs of every one of us, right? So I even, I as a Black woman am not a monolith of all Black women. I cannot talk for all Black women. My background, the things that I've experienced, the, the way that I've processed them is completely different than the next person. Even my sister who has grown up in my house, our experiences are, can be completely different. And so we have to understand the humanity of people, mm. the soulship of people. People are individuals and therefore take into account each person's experience, each person's ideas, each person's thoughts on how things can be better and why. And people have lots of ideas about if <laughs> we just give them a chance. Yeah, and it's such a simple, a simple way to approach that. Stop. I, I loved what you said. Stop guessing what people need and ask them. Yeah. That sounds so simple, but at the same time, it's profound, right? Because like you said, if I, if I were to create a policy that fit Sadie perfectly, assuming that you are this monolith for all right. black, black women or all black people, I'm going to have holes. Big holes. And so I need to not just ask you. I need to not just ask this person. I need, you need to have these constant conversations. And I think that's, that sounds really profound. And I, I want to know like more about how, how can we translate that, that process and that approach into more everyday life as well, not just within, you know, the inclusion initiatives of a company. Right. Well, in my experience, what I found is that the reason we don't ask is because we don't want to know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's really that simple, right? It's like the matrix. Once, you, once you're unplugged from the matrix, you can't go back in. You can't unknow or unsee anything that you have learned or have seen. And so... Sometimes it's simply easier not to know. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Right? And so in not wanting to know, I don't want to ask. Mm. It's easier for me to think that I already know and to guess that I already know than it is for me to actually feel uncomfortable when the, when the answer comes back that what you're doing is detrimental and you don't really know what you're doing. Right. So sometimes people are they're doing something and they're like, well, I'm doing this for the good of these people or this person. And that person goes, it's not doing me any good. Right. But sometimes we're also afraid to say that we're also afraid to hurt people's feelings because they're they're being nice or they're they're trying. Right. But if you're trying and you're not really accomplishing anything because it's the wrong kind of try. I mean, it's kind of, it's like using the wrong tool for the wrong, for the wrong job, right? You can't, you can't use the wrong tool for the wrong job and expect to, to get anywhere. And, but you, but then you keep using it and 
they're not saying anything it's because they're being nice. And so nobody's communicating. Nobody's really talking. Mm. Nobody's really learning anything, right? It's, it's one of the reasons why I started my podcast. My, I just, you know, let's talk. Let's actually talk about the things that affect you or that bother you or that you've experienced. And let's also talk about what are the solutions that you suggest for this? Because if somebody's listening and they've heard about this before, and now you've kind of given them a solution for it. So, yay, let's let's kind of get in there and listen and actually communicate because we could talk. We could talk all day long. You could be talking about one thing and I could be talking about another thing and we get nowhere. Right. So mm -hmm. we have to because we're avoiding discomfort, because we're avoiding being wrong. And because we think that if we're wrong or we're, if we're uncomfortable, it means that we're bad people. No, right. it means that you're growing. I'm doing kickboxing with my, with my son now. The first day that we went to kickboxing was fantastic. The next day, I could barely walk. Like, I was in so much pain. I couldn't get up and down the stairs. Like, my son felt the same way. And we were just like, oh, my God. And we went again and it was fine. And it took five days. It took at least five days for us to feel better. But now we go and we don't have that same discomfort. So lo and behold, if you get through that initial really uncomfortable period, you can get to a place where, oh, I feel a little bit of aches and pains here, but it's nothing like. I felt the first time. Hmm. And so you can then get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And once you can get there, there's nothing you can't learn. And I think that that's what um, Lavi Ajayi said in her TED Talk. It was, you know, we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's the only way that there's ever going to be any kind of change. We're, we can't do it from comfort and and just being nice and being nice is not the same as being kind <laughs> so. i love i love that that analogy of using the kickboxing for the discomfort because we've all experienced soreness i participated in a kickball tournament fundraiser for my preschool my son's preschool and i'm still sore and <laughs> that's embarrassing to say because it was you know a fundraiser kickball event and so i it's very fresh in my mind right now yeah. And I think that analogy works so good because we all know what that's like to feel that physical soreness. And it's so apparent within, in, this con in the context of this conversation that I'm avoiding being sore by not asking those questions. I'm right. avoiding that discomfort. But by comparing those, it gives us some of the power in that, okay, well, if I do that, I have to, I can recover from it, right. do it again, it'll get better. And then right. I'm stronger for it. Right. And I, I love that analogy. I think that's a beautiful way to say it. Instead of saying, well, I don't want to be sore. I don't want to be kicked in the face. So I'm not going to go to kickboxing class. <laughs> right. It's not going to make you a better person to not go to kickboxing. I mean, right. Right. Well, you're yeah. not going to get, you know, those super powerful legs and arms right. and, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to get the benefit. If you're not willing to be uncomfortable, 
Right. Businesses are not going to get gain the benefit of innovation and um, multiple perspectives and creativity if they're not willing to be uncomfortable. Yeah. They they're going to keep getting what they keep. Isn't that isn't that the saying? If you keep doing what you've always done, you're going to keep getting what you've always gotten. So right. why not just move into something that may be uncomfortable, but you're going to get better results. You're going to get new results. You're going to get uh, you're going to be surprised at. Wow, I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, how I, there are many times that I think to myself, I never thought of it that way. And so the more you think of something in a different way, the more creative you can be, the more innovative you can be, the more money you can make, the more equitable you can be and that you can pay people better. And, you know, I mean, it's 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 a domino effect. Everything is a domino. effect, And so. And I want to speak to myself personally as someone who's trying to be a better ally and and more supportive of everyone who's looking who looks different than I do and therefore has to experience life different from me. One of the primary discomforts that I have to fight is that asking the, just the pro, the the step of going into that because for me I'm always worried about offending you by asking. But because that would imply that I'm making some assumptions about you or treating you differently or something like that. Right. Can you address that? If no, if I'm if no one else feels yeah. the same way, if just just only for me, then <laughs> trust me, you're not alone. <laughs> I under I understand the desire not to offend, and I also understand the desire not to do it wrong. But I think that. There's no way for you to get around it. Right. You're going to offend. I, you know, let's just be real about it. You're going to offend. You're going to do it wrong. You're going to say the wrong thing. And, and it's going to be very uncomfortable. But that's the discomfort we're talking about. The difference is if you take that and you do not make it personal and you realize that you've been programmed for, I don't know how old you are, but for however many years you are, you've been programmed to believe in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And although you're, you're programming, you are working on changing that programming, right? You say you're, you're working to be an ally and you're working to give more opportunity to, to different people. Basically, what you're saying to me is that you're willing to spend your privilege to help others also attain that same level of privilege, which is fantastic. But with all the programming that you've gone through, all the unlearning that needs to happen is all going to be uncomfortable to do. Right. You're going to get to a place where you know certain things, but they're never going to get to a place where you know everything. So you're always going to offend. So I'm not, I, I, I don't know how to make it easy for you because it's not easy. And, you know, but what we have to also understand, and I say this a lot, is that, is that marginalized people, Black people, marginalized people, anyone who's being put in a box is, are, they're all contending with the generational trauma that has been inflicted upon them. We're all contending with that. We're kind of working through that because we know scientifically 
that these things can be passed down even genetically, Mm -hmm. right? As a white person, you too have generational trauma. The difference is white people don't see themselves as having generational trauma. They just see themselves as just living life and we're, we're fine and, and we're doing, you know, what we've always done and everything is set up for us. But until you can actually confront that generational trauma, until you can actually think to yourself, people in my past lynched, people in mm-hmm. my past watched lynchings. People in my past did certain atrocious things. Until you can contend with that generational trauma, we're going to continue to have a problem because we have to be able to confront those things, go through those things in order to get through to the other side. And so I think about it a lot and I say, you know, I really want, when we say that it's a white problem, that's what we mean. Mm-hmm. Your generational trauma, you need to deal with that shit. That, that, that is yours to contend with. We can't do anything about that for you. We're dealing with ours, but it's intertwined with what you've done. And so you have to deal with yours and realize how all these systems, educational systems, housing systems, healthcare systems, businesses, how corporate America, how it all has been geared and put in place to cater to you. But how has that happened? And who had to get killed and lynched and, and, and genocided in order for that to be put in place? That's what you have to continue. And I love that you called me out on trying to make it easier for myself because the, the answer that I needed was that it's not going to be easy, right? Because that's yeah. the truth. And one thing that really struck me about the way you said that was, if I'm worried about doing it wrong, which is a constant thought of mine, I don't want to say the wrong thing. So it's easier to not say things. And as a white guy, I can get away with not saying anything. But if I'm worried about doing it wrong, I think I need to realize, as you said earlier, I'm doing it wrong anyways. Right. And so the only way I can start doing it right or start doing it better or more effectively Mm -hmm. is by going through that uncomfortable, pissing someone off on accident. Right. With my good intentions and dealing with it. Right. Not hiding from it. Right. And understanding that people aren't attacking your, your intentions because we don't know what people's intentions are. They're simply letting you know what the impact was and why it was impact why it impacted in that way which ultimately i want to know i just don't want right. to be the one making the impact because <laughs> i i want to be different i want to be better i want you know whatever and yeah and so these are some of the things that i need to get over that, that yeah. those of us who want to do better need to get over we're, we're going to mess it up right and we got to deal with that yes everyone has to deal with these things i yeah. I, I could probably keep talking to you about this for <laughs> more time than you uh, right. have allotted for me today. So I'm going to try <laughs> and uh, right. ease up a little bit. But I wanted to ask you, for for someone like me, oh, maybe uh, a white guy growing up who didn't feel any different, who never noticed the shape of my nose as a child, 
And I just sees the world differently from you. Speaking to us, what do you want us to hear from your story? I want you to understand that there are multiple perspectives on any one situation that's happening. And that simply because it looks okay to you, you've got to stay open to hearing if someone says it's not okay for them. Mm-hmm. It's really about listening and taking into consideration who and how someone is being impacted, who is being impacted and how they are being impacted. Because just because it's okay for you doesn't mean it's okay for everyone. It's set up for you. Mm -hmm. Keep that in mind. Always remember that it's set up for you. And I don't know, there's some people who say, you know, if we're teaching this stuff and we're talking about this stuff, then we're trying to make people feel, white people feel that, they're bad people or that there's something wrong with them. Um, no, that's not the case because that helps nothing and no one. It's not that you're a bad person. It's just that the way that things have been set up have been set up for it to be completely blind to you that there could be a problem for someone else. So staying open, staying vigilant and being open to hearing if someone has an issue is so important and realizing that if it's super comfortable for you it's super uncomfortable for someone else Mm. and for someone who really resonates with your story who might have gone through similar experiences in their childhood in their adult life what do you want what do you want to say to them right now I want them to I want them to realize that where we are or who we are there's nothing wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with any individual who knows that they are part of a marginalized community. There's nothing wrong with your community. There's nothing wrong with the way you eat. There's nothing wrong with the way you walk or don't walk. There's nothing wrong with the way that you wear your hair or don't wear your hair. Own that, be that, and realize that it's your your humanity is what is needed in this society. Your humanity is what other people that might want to oppress you need to see. And it's not that you have to prove yourself. It's just simply that you have to be fully aware that you're okay. I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay. And so we have to let more people understand that we're okay in being who we are. Well, Sadie, thank you so much for spending the time with me today. Again, I could keep talking to you for hours, so I suppose I'll have to settle for listening to some of your podcasts later. Please. (laughs) Tell me more about your podcast. What, What is it? My podcast is Diversity Dish, and as of last week, I can say that it is an award-winning podcast, so I'm really excited about that. Congratulations. Thank you. And so I have conversations with all kinds of people about all kinds of things, but their experiences mostly as it relates to diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice. 
So anyone who's working in that area, any person who is of a marginalized community, I am open to having as many conversations as I possibly can with people who can not only speak to the marginalization that they've felt, but also can speak to some of the ideas and the solutions that they want to bring forth to help move this work forward. It's an open platform, and I really would love for a lot more people to get in on the conversation, listen to the conversations, and and just listen to the vulnerability, the grace, and the the joy as well that comes through um, a lot of these uh, conversations. Well, that sounds amazing. And if our listeners want to continue to follow along your story, where's the best place for them to do that? What are they going to find there? They can listen to the podcast. And so you can search that on iTunes. It's on it's on all podcast platforms, Google, Spotify, all of them. Um, they can do that. But they can also follow me on Instagram. I am Cedrola, S-E-D-R-U-O-L-A on Instagram. And there I share Black Joy. I also share tidbits on that help you to think in terms of why maybe something that will help you shift your thinking in terms of questioning. Questioning is so important. And then they can follow me on on Facebook. I am Cedrola, S-E-D-R-U-O-L-A-M-A-R-U-S-K-A, Cedrola Maruska on Facebook. And I share articles there a lot. Some of the things that make me go, what the oh my God, like what is happening with this world? The dumpster is really on fire right now. So it helps me to share some of that stuff, but also share some inspiring quotes and um, try to keep people uplifted. I say to people all the time, I said, we should be really excited and happy about changing the world, about changing the social structures, about becoming better citizens to each other. So I try to share a lot of that. And finally, you know, I do have a Patreon and I'm I'm working to build that up so that I can continue to do the work that I do. And in a Patreon, they usually get like behind the scenes clips from the podcast and some conversations on on articles and just um, specials on anything that I'm doing. And so I do I do all of that. And for anyone listening and couldn't write those down as fast as she could say them um, because you're in the car or wherever you are i have the i'll have those linked wherever you are um so you can find that copy paste and get right onto her pages follow her story uh sadie thank you again so much for for spending the time with me i i thoroughly enjoyed it and i would love to just talk to you again sometime with more of my questions that come up as i get more and more comfortable Absolutely, Alex. I'm always up for helping to make you uncomfortable. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sadie. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Sadie. If you believe in what Epix is doing and love the content that we're creating, I'd be so grateful if you supported us on Patreon so that we can spend more and more time bringing you epic guests to share their stories with us. One thing I particularly loved about my conversation with Sadie today is that she encouraged me to be uncomfortable in my ally journey. If you've been listening for a while, you may know that I believe it's so important for us to push ourselves outside of our comfort zones, especially when we're trying to become better allies. 
I am always concerned about offending someone with a question that I may ask, and Sadie's advice that I probably will offend someone gives me a lot of anxiety. But the truth that she's leading us to is that discomfort is inevitable. I will never grow if I wait for myself to be perfect before I start acting. So if I want to make a real lasting impact, I need to come to terms with my imperfections and not let those get in the way of my growth so that I can do better next time. I want to remind everyone that I'm selling books on my website that have been a great resource for me on my social justice journey. If you buy any of them through those links on my site, I get an affiliate commission and you're not only supporting the author and a local bookstore, but you're supporting me and the Epics Podcast as well. If you want to continue to follow Sadie on her journey, check the description for links to her podcast and all other social media alongside the links to Epics Bookshop. Be sure to let us know what you've learned from today's episode by reaching out on social media at Epics Pod anywhere and make sure that you're subscribed so that you don't miss our next Epic story. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.